Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Panza Panza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. We present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. Welcome to Pansa Pansa. I'm your host, Kemi Seriki, and today I'm having conversation with my adopted nephew, Dr. Kelechi Ibe Lambert, an assistant professor at State University of New York at Cotland and a host of My Black is Transnational. Welcome to Pansa, Dr. Lambert, I'm so delighted and excited to have you on this platform. And I'm really glad that you are here. And I think we're going to have a lot of conversation because there's so many questions I have in store to ask you. So first of all, just introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about uh, your background as to where you were born and where you spent most of your childhood mm-hmm. and adult life. Well, first and foremost, you know, Antini, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on this show. I've been looking forward to being on the platform in some way, shape, or form. So to be on here as a guest is um, is an honor. Uh, so for everyone that's listening, my name is Dr. Kalechi Ibe Lambert. Um, I, as mentioned already, I am an assistant professor in health um, at State University of New York at Cortland, SUNY Cortland, where I focus on health disparate culture, health um, and health disparities, and how the practice of transnationalism impacts the health behavior attitudes and health outcomes of um, culturally diverse Black communities. But to make it in layman's term, how do we as Black immigrants and uh, Africans of African of various descents uh, and um, backgrounds, how do our connections back to our homeland and our roots or even new lands, how does it affect the way we, we maneuver and, and, and behave? And how, does that, how, do, how do those attitudes impact our health? So I was born, and, I, and a lot of the things that I research is because of my own personal experiences. I was born in Nigeria, in Lagos, Nigeria, a Navy town. Um, I grew up there for about, you know, for pretty much seven and a half, eight years old, and I arrived in the United States, um, where I spent most of my adolescent uh, and rest of young adult life in uh, Chicago. Uh, so I identify as a 1.5 um, immigrant uh, and transnational and um, I grew up in Chicago. Then I got my education at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And I did my postdoc at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And then my family and I moved here to upstate New York, where we were fortunate to um, be able to run into, uh, build relationships with people like you, Auntie Kemi. So it is, I wish uh, I could drag you to the back <laughs> to the city. <laughs> I know, I know. So I we could be more that. closer. I wish I could drag you. 
So uh, you said 1.5 immigrant. What does that mean? So 1.5 immigrant, that's a great question. A lot of people, it's is, is very interesting when we talk about the conversation of immigrants, right? So I'll just give you a general context, especially for those who are listening, right? So people who migrate from their former land to their new land are essentially identified as first generation, right? So for example, you would be considered a first generation African immigrant because you came from Niger and you, and then, but your children now are second generation if they were born in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had a child in Nigeria and that child migrated with you at a young age before their formulative stages as an adolescent where they can fully know who they are, that person would be considered a 1.5. So anyone who migrates with their parents at the age before what they would consider full development, right? By the time you're like 15, 16, 17, if you already, before those ages, anyone who migrates to a new land before those particular ages would be considered a 1.5. One who and a coined, half. Who, who coined that, you know, uh, uh, word 1.5? Because I used to call myself, you know, just immigrant. Yeah. <laughs> I was already formulated before coming here. You yeah. Know, so... And uh, my the children being born here, I consider them first generation. Some people interchangeably, you know, use this term, so it's not really clear to people. So let me so to clarify that, right? The, the when they say first generation for your children, your first generation American, but they're second generation African, right? Mm-hmm. So so the so the research, the literature says that the children will take after their parents in terms of their identity, but they're the second generation of African immigrants. But however, they're the first generation of Americans born from their parents. Mm. Right? So it's it, it it does kind of mix. It depends on what you're trying to identify with. For those who want to say that they're Nigerian American, they would say that they're first generation Nigerian American. Or however, they're second generation African immigrant. Mm. Right? So it's 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 um there and it was coined because of these um very I'm not going to say confused, confusing, but sometimes it can be very nebulous as far as your how you identify yourself within the Black community, specifically when we talk about generational gaps mm-hmm. and how one generation is trying to distinguish themselves because the experiences are different. Mm-hmm. You know, researchers and scholars, specifically those who do a lot of research in terms of the, um, the Latinx Hispanic community, This is initially where some of these um, terminology was coined, the 1.5 and second, because as they did a lot of work on immigrant communities, of course, they didn't really look at the African immigrant community. The African immigrant community is not one that has been highly researched, but a lot of the terminology used to identify immigrant health that's why you're here, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is why I'm here. So because because again, a lot of the things that that's been done really speak on the the brown community, not the black one. Mm-hmm. So we've been, you know, a lot of these terminologies are still very applicable to us because our experiences are not not that far different as far as the migration experience. However, what makes the black community unique is the history. Mm-hmm. Right. Is the history that the black people have gone through and their their ethos in the diaspora makes it completely different as far as how our migration experiences led us here and how our identities are broken down um, into these various sectors. But yeah. not to get into a full lecture. <laughs> <laughs> so 
we, you know, don't let us go too much. Let, let you know, that would be another day whereby we talk yeah. about that incomplete, you know, uh, forum yeah. regarding the identity and, you know, because even the Lat- Latin, um, Latinos here, yeah. some prefer to be called Lat- Latinx, you know, mm-hmm. some rather be called Latinos, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind, kind of like uh, the new generation wants the Latinx, I believe. Yes. The older yeah. generation just said, call me Latino or call me according to which country I came from, because mm-hmm. I cannot even relate to, you know, some of this um, identity that is being coined by the new set of, you know, generation who wants to give you different identity that they think, you know, appropriate for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes instilling on the older generation as well. Yeah. So, you know, just many of our audience who may not know, um, know you too much you know because i want you to share what is it like for you growing up in an immigrant home no so growing up in an immigrant home for me it was very um it was very interesting in regards to the fact that i grew up as an african in america right i i grew up believing you know that i knew outside of my home there was an american world out there but i never identified with the American experience until later on. I had to, growing up in in an African immigrant home means that in order for you to truly get in tune with the American experience, you have to, it has to be a concerted effort. You have to really put in the effort to really acculturate yourself to the American, the rest of the American status quo. The, um, when I was growing up, you know, it was very simple. Life was supposed to be very simple. Your child, read your book, go to school, right? And do good, do, do well in school, go to college, be a doctor. Don't get in trouble with any of these other people. Don't get into anything, any Akata people. You're not one of those. And that was something I was always reminded of on a consistent basis. That was another thing, right? The, the consistent, just, um, reminding and consistent, just, uh, letting you know that you are not them. You're with us. And us is African. Don't associate yourself with them, right? So we were inbred in our homes to be told that I was I was different and I had to behave different. And in order for me to behave different, I need to stay within bounds. So when I, I mean, and it was a hardworking home, very culturally driven, I was, you know, the only thing I can say that I lacked in my in my experience was that the language wasn't something that was spoken. For, well, I wasn't encouraged to speak the language, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. But I was raised in the language. I understand it. Mm-hmm. But it's just that I wasn't able to speak it. I wasn't encouraged to speak it. Therefore, I didn't speak it. So for me, I was very it was I was very adaptable. I was able to adjust because I code switch and I didn't have a problem being able to speak what my mom would say, Americana, right? <laughs> like I, was, I, wasn't, I was able to speak phonair, like very easy. I can do Americana. I can do my lang, my slang slang. And it was easy for me to slang very easy. So when I, when I got to America, I got to America when I was 1997. So I was eight years old. I was in New York city for a little bit. And I moved to Chicago where I was with my mom and it was easy because of course, Growing up in Nigeria, I mean, most people think that we're living in huts, but we have cable. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so, so we were able to watch TV. We watched cable, and it was easy for me to mimic and really understand, exposed to the Western life. So I knew how to speak, and I understood the slang for, you know, quite well. So I was able to adjust, give or take some some context, um, interact, contextual interactions. So, like, 
I was I was fine when I was outside of the house. So a lot of people sometimes be like, oh, wow, I didn't even know you were African until they hear my name. And they're like, oh, where's that from? I'm like Nigeria. Like, oh, you're African? Like, yeah, 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 I'm African. And then my mom, and then if I'm, if you know, if I happen to be talking to one of my like, you know, American friends that I'm having a conversation, like, oh yeah, you African? I'm like, oh, like, oh, mommy, good afternoon. Like, oh what? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what's 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 that? Like, what what just what what happened there? Like, oh, that's that's my mommy. You know, I have to, you know, just you know, that's just. Like, so so it was. You, I mean, I, from a very young age, it was different performances that were happening. I was performing different roles. I had to. I knew how to perform for my friends as far as how to talk to them in that language, and I also knew what to do when I was around my moms, my aunties, my uncles, my pops, and them. I knew how to talk to them too. So again, just negotiating these different identities was um the majority of my experience, honestly, and it helped. I honestly feel like people may say that. And to some degree was, yeah, there's some traumatic things that I guess you don't uncover when you're, when you're younger, but as far as my ability to be able to, to just blend in um, and uh, adjust to different settings, you know, different, different spaces, white spaces, black spaces, African spaces, African-American spaces, even some ethnic spaces, Middle Eastern, and even, you know, some Asian spaces because of the culture, most, you know, some, there's some similarities as far as greeting people, mm-hmm. being respectful, yeah. right. Being humble, um, knowing how to be to some degree submissive, like understanding those things, something are, are, are virtually universal. Yeah. So it's, it was very easy to adapt because of that. So I'm very grateful for my African upbringing. Despite how tough and frustrating it was, I think it helped me become one that was able to interact with many people on different levels. Yeah, I think that has to do also with your personality. You know, maybe because you are much more outgoing person uh, compared to, and the way you might look at things may be different from other people. Because uh, from your experience, from, you know, since I met you, the way you're able to negotiate between even within African culture, African people from different places I, is very much more admirable compared to some of the people that I've met, you oh. know, because, uh-huh. and uh, a, a lot of time, if you're a very social butterfly person, you'll be able to fit in into different areas because there's so many of uh, our first generation who were one and a half that you call who were yeah. born here or born, even born here and they grew up in an immigrant home that they cannot even negotiate those kind of uh, space mm-hmm. uh-huh. they don't they you know they, they don't think they fit in or maybe the home environment where they grew up was so much strict that it's not even allowing them to you know expand and explore different areas that they yeah. could you know yeah. so I, I just want to ask you because I've mentioned it on your podcast you know when I came uh during the time I came why do you think you know even in general African parents kind of restrict their children and say, don't intermingle with this group, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Um, initially, you know, I I thought it was just a general, I used to always think it was just African people being very um, prideful in the idea that, because I know that when I was growing up, it used to always be the, the, the um, you know, we, we have culture, they don't. That used to be something I used to hear from a lot of relatives. And we, we have culture. We have, that means we, we, we are domesticated, we're well-behaved, we know what it is to be able to properly pass down culture that is rich and, 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 it, and it, it, um, it dictates how we behave, 
right? How do we eat properly? And, you know, all these things, these things that people African descent are very proud of. So I used to think it was just like pride, African pride. Oh, it's almost like we're better than them. Mm-hmm. But as I get older and I become a parent myself, I start to understand that maybe that was an issue and maybe that's a driving force to some degree, but there's also a lot of fear, a lot of fear and concern um, because you start to realize that America is not as safe (laughs) as you think for people that look like you. And I don't think necessarily is racism um, that they see initially. I think it's just, they just don't see the same type of community that they had back home. The idea of everybody's auntie and uncle Right. And I think we try to create those spaces here in, in America. We have these hometown associations, you know, Imo, Imo, Umuibo, or, you know, Legotians meet, whatever it is, right? We have these Nigerian associations that we try to create, recreate those, those communities that we have back home where everybody's auntie, uncle. We, we are supportive of each other. We all discipline together. Where in America, especially when you don't know people, that person may look like you, but their values are completely different. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's very, I mean, even as a parent, like for me to even, put I have to trust you to to really put my kids around you and if I don't know you very well I don't know about you I don't know where to find you um and I can't I don't have the resources to reach you and um be able to have a hold of you if anything goes wrong it's a very unnerving feeling and I'm only like I said I'm speaking on this as a father now because it's a very scary thought to imagine my child with someone that I don't know very well I don't know what their values are and and I expect them to to kind of have those same values as me and, and keep my child safe and hold them to the same standards. It's very difficult for me to see that, mm-hmm. right? So I understand now, as I get older, the concern, right? And even though it wasn't, it's a misinformed concern because I think this assumption has been created by the idea that has been that has been uh, to make it to make it sound very to less professor like. Because of the media and what they've continued to put out there and the messaging they've put out there about Black Americans, African Americans, American descendants of slaves, and this idea of ghetto thugs, violent, you know, un, unreasonably violent people, African immigrants buy into that notion too, right? And so they've also, these gang members, these kinds of people, they are very rough. They don't, they, like this idea and when you don't want your children around that because they don't value the same thing you value. So this this is a misinformed fear, but fear nonetheless. And I think that was one of the reasons that I think African parents are strict because you just want to be able to keep your child in spaces that's within your reach. And when you go to a space that's very unknown, which is a world in which African immigrants choose to not they don't they choose to not necessarily immerse themselves in that culture, right? Once we come as immigrants, we come and we stay in our own, we stay with our own people. We don't branch out. We don't branch out and explore what that world is. We don't, I mean, a lot of African immigrants barely even know anything about the African-American history, right? So they don't know what they've gone through. And when you don't know, I mean, people are scared of what they don't understand, right? So if you reach, if you, if you know that you don't know anything about that area, that community, you don't want your child going there either. So you keep them within the circle that you're familiar with, which is your house, your work, your Nigerian associations. That's it. And that's, that's how a lot of African immigrants, in my estimation, I, of course, it can be other factors that I may be missing, but I would say those are one of the general things that I observe. Um, and when I put myself in their shoes as a parent now, I can see those things really 
playing a role as to why they make the decisions they make. Because I really believe, truly, if you ask me, that if these children were in Africa, they would have a lot more freedom than they do when they're here in America. Because there's, a, you know, the environment, you know, the terrain a little bit more than you do here. Yeah, that's true. And also to pick it back on what you said, even apart from uh, uh, viewing African-Americans as what is being seen on the social, on the media and how they portray African-Americans being, you know, thugs and violence and everything. Even among African-Americans, you have different classes. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. You have, uh, you know, those in a professional world who will not allow their children just to, you know, hang out with anybody. Mm-hmm. They want to know who your parents are. You know, what do they do? You know, because when my kids were growing up, um, my son brought a few friends home, and my conversation with with them who are African American. So, how is everything going on in school? What mm-hmm. books are you reading? You know, different things like that. I was even giving out books here. You know, you could read this book. Maybe next time you and my son meet again, we could talk about it. So yeah. a child that does not, you know, uh, feel like, you know, they share those kind of value may easily drop away. Exactly. Or, exactly. you know, uh, because I've had um, even some Nigerian parents whereby their children have African-American parents and they want to go and visit those parents to see if that how, you know, if it's, that environment is OK for their children to come into. And okay. then when they get in there, it's something completely different that they see. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's part of the uh, argument. And that argument also go both ways as well, whereby mm-hmm. African-Americans, the way not yeah. only among the African-Americans, the way Africa is being portrayed in America is, yeah. uh, you know, like they are primitive, you know, they are uncivilized, you know, all this negative image that mm-hmm. they share. And many African-Americans who are already trying to struggle with their own identity to lift themselves up, it's not going to relate to people whose you know image is primitive because mm-hmm. they feel, feel like they don't belong there yeah. you know, until when that education and that's why uh, the idea of you know coming together and learning about each other is very important and i'm glad you you're doing that through your podcast as well you know mm-hmm. so that's the most so during your let me just bring you back to your academic life when you were in on campus Okay. Navigating through the social life in college. How was that for you? Were you able to fit in, even though you kind of like briefed me? You know, were you able to diversify yourself between the black space, white space, and every other space? Because I've spoken to many of our uh, young people whereby they are in college and they only join African Association. They don't go into African American Student Association, even though they were born here. And they grew up here because like mm-hmm. you said, you know, when, when you were growing up, you were able to intermingle from different places. And right. some of them just stay within African, you know, uh, uh, student association. Mm-hmm. Or, and that's it. If some of them join the African-American student association, it's fine. Or the Caribbean student association, even mm-hmm. white space. Because like I always advise many of our youth and I said to them, listen, diversify yourself because the world is big out there. So how did you you know, navigate through that when you were. Oh, yeah, Auntie, that one was easy. Like that one is no, that's no wall. I think because seriously, that what like I said before, you know, it was very easy for me to interact with people from various communities. Now, I went to, a, you know, 
um, in, in middle school, I was in an all white private, you know, private school, Catholic school, all white. I was one of, but when I went to high school, you know, I was in a very diverse community, primarily African Americans, some Africans, you know, some people from the Middle East, uh, people from Asia, very diverse high school, Sullivan High School in Chicago. And when I got to, by the time I was in high school, that's when I really understood how I really found my niche as far as being able to, to, to translate myself and be able to be um, a chameleon of sorts and blend in, right? I, can, I, I was able to be very fluid because one thing that I did that I think a lot of African immigrant children, whether you're one, four, five, or second, or whatever, whether you're born here, you came here young. One of the things that I did that they didn't do enough of, in my opinion, they didn't really immerse themselves in the history and literature of what's going on in African-American. That's what I did. Right. When I was in eighth grade, I did a project, a history project on the book Separate but Unequal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when it started opening up because I didn't realize what was happening. I mean, when I, when I remember about Brown versus Board of Education, I was like, what is this? I was just doing it. Right. I was just doing it because one, I was black. I felt I needed. But then I started really understanding like, wow, like there's something different about being an American and being black here that people don't talk about enough. And in Nigeria, growing up, you used to always think that the white people were the cool people and, and the good guys. And then you come and you realize that it's not as much as you really, I mean, there's some good white people, but it's not as majority as you think. There's a lot of people and a lot of things that happen that people don't want to talk about. So I have to intentionally go out of my way to get myself in and in, in up to speed on what really happened to our brothers and sisters here that were brought here voluntarily. Now, fast forward to college, you know, I understood the language. I understood the plight. I understood what happened and I understand what what drove their perspectives. So for me, I was able to talk that talk. I was able to interact and go into these different spaces. I understood, of course, the urban urban culture, music, hip hop, all those things. I was very well versed in that. That's my life growing up in Chicago. So all those things were very much so bridges that you can use to engage in, in conversations. And then at some point, you know, because when we were younger, we were so embarrassed about being African, it was easy for us to really just live the African-American lifestyle outside of our homes. But when we found our African student associations and things, you know, that was another space for us to be able to really tap into our cultural, our cultural roots, but also understand what we bring in as this new generation of Africans in America. We really started to find ways to make it cool, to blend it, to blend both worlds. So I was involved in the African Student African Culture Association, African Student Organizations. I was involved in the CBSU Central Black Student Union. I'm part of a you know historically Black African American fraternity. You know I pledged a fraternity, Iota Phi Theta, um, as a, as a freshman. So like I especially me pledging a fraternity, a lot of a historically um, Black um, you know Divine Nine fraternities, which are very prominent in all the universities, especially HBCUs, mm-hmm. they're all grounded in Black history. All their history is tied into Black history, from the Alphas in 1906 to the Iotas in 1963. They're all tied into a movement that was meant to create safe spaces for African Americans so that they can thrive, right, and be able to not just thrive in college, but thrive as professionals once they graduate. So once I once I took into consideration all these things, it was very much so easy to be able to go into both worlds. In fact, a lot of a lot of us young African kids who go to college end up pledging these fraternities. And a lot of us who end up pledging these fraternities end up knowing a lot more about the African immigrant, I mean African American lifestyle. And nowadays we just bring both worlds together because it was the time where you just kind of had to 
you you kept this space here and you kept your African student here and you kept your, but nowadays we were able to bring it a little bit closer. People who were your, who you didn't know before, but because of this fraternity or because of this organization you're part of, you become close, you're, you're like brothers, fictional family. And now because this person is supposedly your brother, they want to know more about you. So they start to inquire more. They start to see the things you do when you're not in their same spaces. And, and that was how I was able to just navigate. Um, and it was great because I built so many relationships with so many people from different backgrounds and everyone kind of understood the, the, how dynamic it is to be black and how special it is. So that, that, that college was College grad school was a blast. <laughs> it was a blast. I had a great time. Well, that's great. But that shows that there's so much more that you and I need to talk about. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. maybe, you know, to talk about different episodes regarding navigating through white space, which I want mm-hmm. to focus on the conversation because in America, we could talk about, uh, understand Black history, African history, understanding what is being done to our heritage, you know, uh, mm-hmm. brothers and sisters, mothers, you know, uncles who were brought to America during the time of slavery and how they've been treated or during even colonization. So how do you navigate through those space? Because I've seen many of our first generation African who, because the parents do not have the, they have immigrant experience, they don't have black experience. Mm-hmm. They've never talked to their children how do you navigate through white space? Uh-huh. You could be among African-Americans students in college, but when it comes to them navigating through white space, many of them know how to navigate. Yeah. And they have many of them working on Wall Street. You know, even though it might be difficult, they might have some kind of glass ceiling that they place on them in terms of, you know, this is how far you could go. But they still yeah. know how to maneuver. Yeah. And it could create less stress for them. Yeah. But when we have a lot of our African immigrant children who graduate maybe top of their classes yeah. and they're working in corporate America and they don't know how to navigate because they've never been exposed to those environments or even be able with their degree, you know, their advanced degree to get a job in those space. Yeah. And even if they do, they end up dropping out yeah. at early age because they couldn't handle the pressure. Yeah. So it's part of those conversations I want to be able to have with you. Maybe we, you know, we could get more people to have those dialogue because it's so important. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, you know, whatever, whatever you want me to, whenever you want me to come and talk, um, like I said, I make me a permanent guest. Whatever. You uh, want oh me yes, to oh yes. You know, we're gonna have a lot of conversation. I know okay. that. So you know, apart from all these activities that you were involved in in school. How do you say coming from an immigrant home whereby, you know, when you talk to the elders in a form of respect, you know, which is very important. And uh, also looking at professors in school as a a figure of authority in your classroom. Do you think your African background have an influence in how you interact in class, how you participate during class? uh, uh, No. Yes and no, right? I I think respect is earned. And I believe that I don't, I mean, I'm, it depends on when you say authoritative, meaning I'm, I'm, I'm not people's parents in, 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 uh, in, when I'm a professor, I'm a professor, I'm just here to facilitate knowledge. No, I'm I, saying when you were in college. Oh, when I, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Uh-huh, when, when you were in college, in college yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It was it was definitely that idea of, you know, respecting the authority. And that was something that trickled down as a kid um, and as a college student initially. And I think there's something to be said about respecting elders and respecting authority. But again, as I got older, um, by the time I got into my master's, I think that's when I really start to see things. And I was like, oh, these people are human too. Like they make mistakes too, right? They're human beings too, especially professors, right? They're not infallible. So why am I sitting here <laughs> frustrating <laughs> for these, like frustrating for these people who really, and you know, it doesn't make sense. And of course it's a difference because for me, I think the ones, the professors that I run into that are of African immigrant descent or African immigrants, you know, I think there's a different dynamic there because it's a relatability. So of course, for those, unless you're not a proponent for me, I have no problem if I see you. And, I, and, and the thing about it, if I see you, I'm going to give you the, the common courtesy of the of the sir and ma'am, ma, whatever, however it is, whatever country you're from, because I think that's just standing. That's just how I always comport myself with people I don't know, because my thing is at some point, me too, I will be old and I, I would love to be given the same thing as karma. I do believe in that to some degree. Uh, and, and so, but as far as now, those who have gone above and beyond and and really look out for me and really and those are the ones that I believe are my you know my aunties <laughs> the uncles you know those are the ones that because when you if you're taking the time to go above and beyond because you're truly invested in me that is something that in my opinion that's the effort of family I think that family is not just a noun it's a verb it's the action that you take in order to to make sure that those who are younger than you your junior ones can thrive and be, if not in your level, but even past your level to be able to, you know, lift as we climb, as they say in the African-American community. So now for me, so when, when I was, when I was growing up, that was always how I comported myself, especially for two adults, but I've never been the one to allow for people to abuse that authority. I've always been, that is when I guess these people see another side of me when they start to, when I start to believe that you're abusing the respect and the reverence that I'm giving you mm -hmm. because you think that, you know, because sometimes, you know, Africans or other people just, like, just because I'm older than you, all of a sudden it's like, you know, I can just say or do whatever. And that's not my fault because I always have my, my attitude switches when I can sense the abuse. Um, because especially as a young adult, when I've paid my dues as a young child, there's no way I'm going to allow myself to continue to take on that abuse. So it, with professors and things, I respect the authority. But once I start to sense there's there's a sense of um, there's a sense of abusing of that power, or, or there's a sense of misuse of authority, uh, then I think it's time to tap into the American freedom of speech <laughs> that that allows for us to <laughs> for everybody to say what we need to say respectfully. Um, mm -hmm. because you still, you still, sometimes people talk, talk and talk, but I've always been very cognizant of the fact that yes, you can talk, but there's still ways you go about mm -hmm. challenging the authority in a respectful manner in which you're not handicapped and in which the consequences don't end up being severe for you. Because at the end of the day, you're still the student, you're still the professor. You're the one that still has to get something mm -hmm. from them. The professors, me as a professor now, I know like, I I'm only here to facilitate. I don't have to give you anything, everything you earn. You're the one that's paying for the school. Yeah. Yeah. You're the one that needs to get yeah. this. And so you're still the one that has to earn that and, and, and work your way towards it. So you're, you're the one that has stake in the game, mm -hmm. not the professor. So it's that's the dynamic overall. Yeah, that, and that's so true, because uh, one thing that I've seen, I've heard many of our uh, uh, youth uh, in college, whereby they come from home, whereby um, the opinion does not matter. Mm -hmm. 
and you look at the teachers or the authority as you know whatever they say that's what's supposed to be there's no give and talk back back and forth in terms of okay yeah. your opinion i think this professor you know what you're saying actually in the classroom i said i object to what you just you know mm-hmm. uh, the theory that you're trying to prove this is mm-hmm. my thought towards things which many of our, uh, our uh, immigrant children may understand that but may have very fearful of actually coming along and saying that because it's not something that is being practiced within the home. Yeah. Yeah. You know? and, and, oh, sorry. Go, go no, ahead. go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, you're, you're right. In, in terms of that growing up now, growing up for me, it was definitely very similar when I was at a, at a young age, as far as my opinion you know, didn't really matter at that point. It was just, it was just air, you know, but at some, at some point, as you get older, it was, I became a little bit more uh, firm, not disrespectful, but mm-hmm. firm and just letting you know my voice when the time comes, just saying, this is where I stand and then moving on. Whatever you take with it, just know that I've said it. Mm-hmm. I'm not pretending. In school, when professor, I unless it was something I had to do, and, and a lot of things, I'll be completely honest by saying that a lot of things that I reflect on as far as my experience in school that may have been a product of systemic racism or things like that, I didn't really pick up on then. But when I look at, when I think back on some things that may have happened, I can say, okay, well, maybe there were some things that I didn't even recognize that I just kind of took because of my inherent uh, my inherent belief in just doing what you're assigned and just not complaining, mm-hmm. working through it and just moving on to the next thing, working yourself through. We have this, we've been trained to be able to not complain, just do the work, be grateful. So having that opportunity, especially for me, right? Because my my immigration experience wasn't typical, right? I was when I didn't I didn't officially get myself together as a as, you know, didn't get my papers and everything until I was in like what? I was a sophomore in in college. So for me, it was very challenging. I had to stay within the lines as far as immigration yeah. goes, right? I, I So of course, I wasn't going to open my mouth and <laughs> talk crazy, you know, but once I got myself settled and once I got into grad school, it was very easy not to start seeing things. So in undergrad, I was getting my bachelor's. I was, just did what I needed to do. And I didn't understand things as clearly as I did when I got into my master's program and really started seeing that those people that you consider authorities are very capable of making mistakes. And a lot of them do. So then I started to apply to a general scope of things as far as like parents and things like that. Like no one's perfect. These adults that you are saluting and <laughs> they deserve yeah. the reverence for yeah. living life and surviving it. They definitely yeah. deserve the respect for, for making it through life because life is not easy, but they're also not perfect. Therefore they're not, you know, they're not capable of, they're not incapable of being held accountable if necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that, and that's so true. I just, yeah, I just asked those questions because yeah. Uh, from some of our youth that I've spoken to, whereby they feel like uh, they can't have, a, even though they might know the answer in classroom, they are not really participating in classroom oh, because, you know, sometimes they feel like, oh, you know, I might say the wrong thing, you know, look at this other one talking to the professor, expressing themselves freely, yeah. and I'm not able to do that you know, because of my upbringing. And I know many parents who may listen to this may actually encourage their children to give a feedback you know i've always been a proponent that there's a way you can find ways to articulate yourself now of course that doesn't always mean that whatever you say to this person everybody's going to accept but i do think that so long as i I carry this thing as far as disagree but don't disrespect 
Now, if, you know, you can disagree. You can find ways to you can find ways to hopefully articulate that you disagree with someone, but that doesn't mean that you disrespect them and what their beliefs are. It's okay to disagree. We just don't disrespect it. So I can disagree with the opinion, but I don't want to disrespect the person. It's the people that believe that their opinion is who they are <laughs> that that you can find trouble that you can find trouble with, right? Because when you're disagreeing with the opinion, now you feel like you're disrespecting them, and that's when things can become very convoluted but are very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if for me, I've always been the one to believe that if I didn't agree with you, I would try to find a way to say, well, I think, you know, I think, and, and this still falls in the, 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 realm, the realm of being submissive to a degree, but it's just saying, okay, well, you know, professor or sir, ma'am, I kind of think this, what about this option? I've heard about this. I kind of feel like this can also be something can t- we can talk about, right? Or, so I try to frame it in a way that doesn't necessarily seem like I'm rebelling especially at that stage in my life but it was just me bringing another topic into the forefront for them to acknowledge and if they don't acknowledge it then I think I wasn't necessarily going to push back at that point in my life but I would still always bring it up but I definitely agree and for the parents the parents who are listening it's definitely important for you to allow your children to express themselves but also teach them how to express themselves in a way that still brings you whatever respect you're looking for Mm-hmm. Um, you have to negotiate that by allowing them to hear to hear the thoughts, but making sure that they say it in a way that doesn't come off as you know who are you talking to, you know. And it's just like it doesn't seem like they're coming off brash or abrasive. They're not coming off rough, uh, but they're still expressing how they feel, and that's something that you have to start in an early age so that they can learn how to articulate themselves and, yeah. and express. And sometimes anger will happen. That's that's natural, but how do you properly deliver? Those are the ones. Th- those are the ones that make the difference between you know. Um, good and great communicators and in in, in i want to dive that into you know uh the career after you finally get a job i'm not talking about you per se but you know yeah, yeah. in terms of you know with it because i focus this conversation uh, uh, on african immigrant community and their uh, children growing up in this country yeah when you don't have that background understanding the black experience mm-hmm and you're working in a corporate world, many things that other African-American might see as being racist, you may not see it as being racist. Exactly. Do you think that is kind of like a a benefit or detrimental? Because if I don't see something as as being racist, or I just see as maybe this person is not just a nice person. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's certain, there's certain ignorance they'll say is bliss in this regard, but I don't think so because I think if you don't know, yeah, they say, you know, what, what, what you don't know won't hurt you, but it's hurting you because you are, you're saying that it doesn't, a lot of African immigrants, when we have conversations about the difference between us and them, so to speak, mm-hmm. is that idea of what you just, what you just um, illustrated, which is that African immigrants don't let that notion of racism and everything affect them. Really. They don't, it doesn't, you know, a lot of peers that I've talked to in the past say, well, whatever they say, doesn't hurt me because what, what are you going to say? You're going to call me an N word. Was that like, it doesn't stop me from doing my work and all those things. The actual direct racist, you know, statements and comments may not impact that African immigrant. And that's true. Right. And that may be to some degree a benefit of the, of not having to go through that, generational trauma mm-hmm. and the thing about it as we, as african-americans will hold those you know those people accountable 
to their words and and sometimes almost to a fault. And when I say to a fault, I mean sometimes it can lead to that being the focal point. But to their to their um defense, you have to we can't speak to a trauma that we don't know. Right. And we can't then judge that because of what it made. We don't we don't know it. Many of us don't know what it's like to have ancestors that are, you know, slaves and, and all those things. We came here, visa, lottery, all those things like that. So I think when people talk about that experience, I don't know if it's a benefit because the systemic, mm-hmm. the systemic racism, not the individual right? It's still operating and not just operating, it's operating at a very high level, right? So I think, so I think that when we as African immigrants don't see it, that's our ignorance. But when we do, and we don't say anything, just because you're keeping quiet and you think that you're going to keep your head down and and grind, 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 that glass ceiling that you brought up not too long ago Mm -hmm. is still there. Mm -hmm. And what happens is the people who are the majority, the white people, whomever, they just then add us to the group of model minorities, like they do for the um, Asian American communities. They just say, oh, look at the Africans. They don't complain. But that our ceiling is still the same. It's still capped. Mm-hmm. So we're just we're just pretty much complacent to the fact that we have limited potential, limited capacity to be able to grow and expand mm-hmm. as a community but we're not complaining. So therefore it seems like we're okay with them. And the truth is we're not because we just don't know. Mm-hmm. We didn't recognize it, but yeah, the African American which, community- which, is, which is so true because also, you know, I mean, uh, and I always say it anywhere, African immigrant just does not just face um, the institution of racism and discrimination. You could all, you could, we also face it from other uh, people of color as well. Mm. And when you're walking around other people of color, as an African, you're being looked at as, you know, others. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's as if you have to prove yourself. Or yeah. even if you're an African working among the Latino population, you're also being looked at as others. Mm-hmm. So there's so much you have to battle with <laughs> on different levels. Various levels. Yeah. So for you uh, who grew up here, uh, maybe different because you know you could easily blend in. And I've yeah. seen the situation of many or some of our children who actually were born here, but the moment they see their name, oh, this is an African African name, and they ask, oh, my mom or my daddy are from Africa, is to look also look at them as others. Yeah. So it's part of those conversations that we need to have. Because there's, they call it intersectionalism mm-hmm. or something like that, whereby there's so many layers yeah. to yeah. what the challenges that you face. Yeah. And for me, I always, you know, advise, you know, many of our youth or even me that just don't take things on the face value. You know, wherever you are, whether, whether you are among, you know, the Caucasian or any other group, you know, <laughs> people are people. Yeah. You know, so that's how I, I usually just look at things because you could have a white person also working with another white person whereby they treat them the same way that they would treat a black person, but they don't even need to talk about issue of race. They don't mm-hmm. need to use language. But to, uh, a person of color, it could look as if, oh, you know, this white person is just discriminating against me, mm-hmm. but they are not 
actually, you know, vocalizing it. <laughs> but then when you see the same way they treat another white person, it's no different. Different, yeah. uh-huh. So you just look at that person, uh, you know, as just a, 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 a person who is not just a nice person or who have issues. Yeah. Or a boss who is just so power hungry that yeah. anybody that works be, beneath them, they oppress them. Yeah. And you could work with a black person. It could be the same. Yeah. You know. So but it's very difficult for, for many of us in the black community to be able to uh, identify what's what. <laughs> because of just it's because of how often you get to experience the the one that is a product of you know systemic mm-hmm. racism it's very difficult to determine when this is just a bad person compared to this is a product of you know a larger system so yeah. it, and and what do you i mean most of the time it's easier to it's easier to you know defend yourself from all compared to opening yourself to one and that may be the wrong one so mm-hmm. i i think a lot of you know, black people, African Americans, and some Af- and some Africans struggle to being able to know how to determine it. And I don't think it's um, it's it'd be a very difficult tool uh, to try a, de- a very difficult task to try and navigate and determine which one out of mm-hmm. every five boss is a is a you know is just a jerk compared to you yeah. know being a racist or uh, yeah. being a, 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 a being you know complicit with racism yeah. I say. because i uh, you know i have a family uh that li- you know um about a few years ago six years ago whereby uh the, she was working in this um company in you know in the state where she was i don't really want to mention it you know because it might be obvious you know so she was telling me there were four africans who were working there and they had a supervisor who mm-hmm. happens to be African American, and she got rid of all the Africans. Oh, at that job, got rid of each one of them. This person that I know personally was the last one to go. Even the white people at that job, uh, you know, at that company, couldn't believe it. Wow, because you know she was a, a kind of person that she unapproachable. And she looks at, you know, to me, the way this person was describing her, looks at African immigrants as if they are, you know, invaders that you need to get rid of. And she fired out all the African immigrants. Four of them working there. There was a guy that works there. I think uh, she was saying, this person telling me that, you know, this person was from Ethiopia, that the guy has master's degree. And this is the first job he ever got that he could use as part of his experience to move up, to be able to get another into another position. And she got rid of all of them. And the white people who were also working within the same unit couldn't just believe it. Hmm. So it's, 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 it's the issue to talk about. It's some of the issue to really yeah. address. Yeah. You know, because we cannot just talk about only issue of race and then you know blame you know talk only focusing on race yeah. and uh, identity but we also have to talk about different layers of things you know so let me you know it's part of the conversation i'm going to have with you extensively later yeah. on uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. so so when you were getting a phd is not something is yeah it's very challenging i mean 6 7 years 
Yeah, uh-huh, to, to be able to do that, you know, yeah. and uh, do it successful. What w- would you consider some of the challenges that, you know, you face during um, your academic um, career? Man, that's a good point. And it, that's a good question. Actually. And it's, it's the biggest challenge I face is, I mean, it's currently one that kind of speaks to why I do what I do now, which is, I wanted to speak about my my story and my people, and because I felt like in academia, they don't talk about our people enough. And when I say our people, I mean the African immigrants in America who have this different this different relationship with their their community and their homeland. They still are very resistant to acculturating to the land they live in. My mom has lived in America for 40, almost 40 years. You ask that woman, but she's on a daily basis. You'll never hear her say she ate mac and cheese. You'll never hear she say she ate cornbread. She used to say, I'm alive for, right? And just like she, and that's what she's been eating, rice, stew, goat. Like she's been heavily Nigerian, even when it comes to just, you know, treatment, the same old thing. Everything about her is still Nigerian America. She's very heavily resistant to becoming an American by cultural practice, right? And I wanted to speak to that. When I was getting my master, doing my master's thesis, I was fortunate enough to have a good advisor, Dr. Reginald Austin, an African-American man, who just basically sat me down because initially my whole plan was to try and do you know, work like, like governmental work, like WHO, CDC, you know, I was thinking because, but I was also always planning to go to medical school because every African kid has been told to go and be a doctor somewhere. Right. And my father, my father's a doctor in Nigeria, you know, I mean, he's okay. a doctor now, he's a retired doctor, you know, Dr. Kennedy Bay Lambert, he's a retired radiologist. So everybody's always like, be a doctor, be a doctor. I was like, well, look, like, seriously, <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, and honestly, I was pursuing that dream until, and I say this in almost everything now I talk about, I, until I met my wife, and I did, it just, it just didn't make any sense, because she's a physician, and I realized that when we talked, and I was like, well, I want to get my MD and PhD, and it was just like, what are you doing it for, why, like, when they ask you truly, why do you want to do this, and it didn't, the, the, my reasoning didn't make sense to the amount of time, work, and effort I was going to commit, the sacrifice I was going to make for why I wanted to do this, just so I can say I have MDPG for who, for what, like, it, it didn't make sense. So anyway, in the, in the, in the, in the whole conversation I had with Dr. Alston, my advisor at the time, we really just talked about me and my experiences. And I wanted to do a project initially that focused on water scarcity in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about it, and I started to bring in this idea of me living in America, my family living in America, but still being heavily African and being part of these communities that are heavily African. And there's something about it that's very different than African-Americans and African immigrants who choose to not have anything to do with Africa once they arrive here. It is a choice. People make it seem like it's not. It is a true choice for us to be able to stay connected to our homeland and be rooted in it and resist the urge to become fully westernized. So it started to emerge like this is something that is unique, but it's something that we've been doing for a very long time that people just don't want to label in research. Mm-hmm. So I really started to look into it. And that's when I came up with the idea of transnationalism. Mm-hmm. So as I was going through my dissertation and, and going through my doctoral process and building my dissertation, 
nobody cared about that. I can when I when I would try to bring that up to professors and advisors and other field, you know, I was the only one at that time, you know, in 2014, really talking about this idea of transnationalism and what it means for health, what it means for the health of Africans and Africans who are still eating Eba and Efo in America. How are they keeping up with this diet? People who go to Africa and they come back and they bring back meat, dried fish, you know, because I'm speaking to my life. This is me search. This is what I call nowadays. I call me search. My research mm-hmm. is solely about my life and experiences <laughs> that others can relate to because I know my mom she goes there she comes back with a whole bunch of you know coolie coolie and and dried you know I'm like all these things that she would bring back in a different bag these are experiences that not many black people have right and many people african-american my wife can't say that she, her family has ever done that go to africa and come back and bring back all this bring back cassava bring back you know, fish so that they can be able to keep eating. These things are unique behaviors that sustain a particular practice that could potentially influence your health. So I started to speak on this idea of transnationalism and it started to make a lot of sense to me. And, but no one else wanted to buy into it because no one cared about the African immigrant experience, right? So it was a very challenging thing. Um, And I was fortunate enough to find one other colleague of mine who's very close to me, he's a brother from Congo, Dr. Dade um, Shiswaka, who... Him and I became very close colleagues, and he was from Congo, and we started to realize the the uniqueness in our work. And he, you know, him being from Congo, a French-speaking African immigrant, he started to realize that his experience as a French-speaking African immigrant is completely different than mine as an Anglophonic Mm English-speaking immigrant, because he has to be reliant on his community of French speakers, where we, as those from West Africa that speak English like Ghanaians and Nigerians, we can blend easily. It's not a problem. We understand English, right? So we can be, it's just maybe some slangs here and there. So the challenges were, there are so many other things we needed to unpack. And we realized that they don't talk about African immigrant studies enough in the, in the, in the community. They don't talk about it in African studies. They don't talk about it in African, you know, in health. So being an advocate for my own research while other people were telling me, oh, don't bring this up. And I was very big because of what I talked about early in this interview, as far as understanding and being very empathetic to the African-American struggle, a byproduct of my research work was to really find ways to bridge the gap between the two, or at least bring to light the idea that these two communities are, are different yet underserved right? They're very underserved in their own right. And they both can't be ignored. But you have to also say that you can't put African and African Americans in one big bowl and say that this treatment will work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Because that's what health research is doing. Health, health research will say this, there's a one size fit all for, for the Black community. If you take this solution, mm-hmm. it, it applies to every person that looks Black. Mm-hmm. It's a very mm-hmm. lazy concept. It's a very lazy approach not taking into account that the Black community more than almost any other racial ethnic community is the most diverse, is the most unique. Because as my wife will always say, Black can produce many different colors. <laughs> you can have a Black mother that can produce a lot. Look at my child. You've seen my child. <laughs> right? Like you can produce different, different shades of color, right? A Black woman can produce a baby that looks very white. Right. And, 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 and a very Black, right? So it's, it's a very unique thing. But when I brought it up, no one really wanted to put an effort. So I had to be my own advocate, right? And I had to go against the grain. And my advisor, um, who my, for my doctoral uh, process, not the same man I described earlier, was uh, a Brazilian woman who she, she, she didn't really understand it, 
right? Mm-hmm. She, and I don't think she necessarily cared enough. So I had to fight my own fight. And getting the, the thing about doc, the, the, getting a PhD that a lot of people don't understand unless you go through it, that yes, you spend six, seven years going through it, and that's tough, but it's very political. Mm-hmm. It's very political. You have to be able to have, because the whole point is for you to get out, but you have to be able to convince people that you have the ability to be able to make, um, you can create an issue that's worth addressing, mm-hmm. that people can care about, that people will give money to and fund. So you have to have, be able to buy, get people on your side and, and, and advocate for your work. And everybody has their own agenda. So it's like, you have to now convince these people to be on your committee to then see what you see, if they care about it or not, and then advocate and say that your work is worthy enough for you to go and leave and graduate and be independent as a researcher. It's a very, very, those are the, the more difficult things that I didn't know until yeah. I got towards the end. So again, and this is why I, I am a very big advocate of my transnational work is that even now, when I speak on the idea of transnational, a lot of people are like, oh, what's this? But I, it's something that I have to stand by and defend for a very long time because I was trying to explain to people that you can't group all of us as one. Mm-hmm. I, we see this on a day-to-day basis, but you don't understand that we all live these transnational lives that people aren't aware of. Because if you chose to not be in, uh, connected to Africa, if you chose to not call your people, if you chose to not respond, if you chose to just simply focus on living life in America, your life would be completely different completely different there are many africans now whose life and stress is heavily driven by what's going on back home now today yeah. many yeah. right what the house you're building the family you have to send money to mm-hmm. when all those things if you chose to cut it off you live a different life right so it's not it's not it's not something that people people take it for granted but it's not something that people should take for granted it is a unique characteristic that we choose to create a bridge that allows us to travel from here to Africa and Africa back. And we go back and forth. And whether it's physically or even emotionally, or whether it's, you know, historically, we have a bridge that we built mm-hmm. that, you know, we now have the devices to stay in touch. So anyway, to make my long story short, is just to say that the most challenging thing about PhD life was being able to truly defend the notion that African immigrant issues, African immigrant health mattered. And people needed to invest more resources into supporting research that can bring to light the issues of African immigrants. Because African immigrants were coming in droves. The research shows that from the year 2000 and 2010, the numbers of African immigrants increased by over 100%. (laughs) So, but the thing about it, as we've talked about before, many of us, our parents are getting older. And all those dreams about going back to Nigeria and going to live in your mansion, when you realize what America has to offer, in far as not just as far as good things, but as far as loans and debt, you realize that you're stuck in this country unless you have to work three times as hard in order for you to survive and get back, or unless your child is able to become some millionaire that's able to pay off all your loans, is very difficult for you to really see how you go back. Mm-hmm. So people are here and they're aging, and they're still like my mother, very resistant to becoming America. So, how do we take care of them? My mom does not respond to the African American treatment because mm-hmm. she doesn't identify as such. So how do we respond? How does America respond? America barely knows these people exist. The reason why they all look black and all black people look the same and behave the same. And that's the assumption. So once they start, you know, once they stop making these assumptions and start trying to find ways to, to, to understand our culture, our identity, our background and how we're different. And it's okay to be different because different things happen to us. Mm -hmm. 
life will get better. And the only way that we can do that is when you have people like myself who are from these communities advocate, use your skills to, to speak and speak out for us and call for resources for us, which is why I don't, I don't negate or I don't try to bring down those people who go and be doctors, lawyers, and engineers. But sometimes even being a professor sometimes is not looked upon favorably enough. But I try to explain to people that being a researcher, having a PhD is a very important tool, especially if you're focused on health, yeah. because you have people who will be doctors and lawyers and all those things are good. And it's very, and there's money and all, it makes your parent proud and all those things. But what, who is speaking for you? Who is speaking for you in these spaces when the government, the CDC, the NIH, these yeah. people are allocating money yeah. to be able to create yeah. life-changing yeah. interventions yeah. for Black communities that don't include us because they don't know us. Yeah. They don't know us at all because I, we've chosen. You're so right. And I wish, I hope, I pray that more people like you, okay, will come up. Because when we talk, like you said, the research that is being done is it covers everybody together. All Black people are the same without looking at their unique experience. Among the Latino community, they are to fight exactly. to get their unique need exactly. because they understand that, exactly. you know, their experience as an immigrant, even though some, many of them have been here from the day one too. Yes. Okay. And they continue to fight for their you know, their need. I remember reading uh, Sonia Sotomayor's memoir, mm -hmm. which, you know, one thing I always tell many people in our community, we don't read enough. Read enough, yeah. Okay, you could have a PhD, you could have all these degrees, you could be a doctor, lawyer, engineering. Your education does not stop after you finish college. You have to continue to read. Yes. And I found that through our, our, our writing that, you know, she, they actually, she put it how they're able to come up with their own um, proposal by looking mm -hmm. at what African-American uh, community did during this time of in the 60s, right. you know, yeah. how they're able to push the government for different things that would be beneficial for their community. And they wrote something similar to that to be able right. to pull this. So mm -hmm. and one thing that I'm seeing in a lot of our, uh, our young people here among the African immigrant children who are in different areas, there's no commitment to the community where they come from. And I know some of them who may hear this may want to argue with me. Mm. <laughs> they may say, oh, she's, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But I don't really see too many, too much mm. of it. Because someone like you in this field, many other people should be able to connect with you. Because yeah. whether we would like it or not, actually, when, I, when I'm trying to find out information about anything, I do research on African immigrant, this African immigrant. And, you know, you, you look at the report, who wrote it? Mostly white people from exactly. Canada. Exactly, from Canada. Okay, writing exactly. about, you know, the, the experience of Im African immigrant, what are the issues that they're going through and all that stuff. But because you don't see too much, you know, when it comes to African actually telling their own story. The children actually telling the, the, the story of their parents, you know, because all these things you talk about regarding the issue of health and your mom, and there's so many people like your mom out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Good, you know, uh, you know, I have them in my friends. Like I told you when I came to your podcast, I didn't have my children until after 10 years later. So that allows me to integrate. When I came to this country, you know, being alone, you don't have anything else to do. You know, I navigate 
through different places. I go to different lectures. You know, someone, I mean, I've been to lecture of Dr. Henry Clark mm-hmm. <laughs> when he was alive, you know, giving lecture at City College about, uh, you know, African history, African-American struggle and all these uh, uh, things. And that actually woke my awareness for me to understand what colonization has done to the psychic of African people, <laughs> you know. So I'm so glad that you are actually bringing this forward. And I hope many of our youth, many of our people who are in academia will continue to understand it. Because, you know, whether we're talking about health issue, physical health, mental health issue, emotional health issue, you know, it's, it has to be focus, treatment yeah. focus. Yeah. Whereby when you have a lot of research to back this up, like you said, with the CDC and say, you know what, this is a unique experience. This exactly. is what we need. Exactly. And we need to address it. So thank you so much for that. I didn't even know our conversation would get all the way to that area. Thank you so much for that. So, and, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is so profound of what you just said regarding that experience that, you know, you wanted to bring something up and you have to fight the academia. And even the woman from, you know, from Brazil, she should be able to know better. No, because you know, you know the Brazilian experience. You know, there's you have your white Brazilians and you have your black Brazilians, and she's yeah. a white Brazilian. But so, you, you know, know what? I go to Brazilian Day Parade here in New York. Uh-huh. They they have them. You know, you should see. It's as if you are in some African village. You know. Yeah, and you, there's so many ties to to Africa or Brazil. You know. Yeah, you're, you're especially the Yoruba. Mm-hmm. Yoruba culture in itself. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And we have to dig more into that conversation later on because it's something that we have to build the drum to. So thinking back to your childhood, you know, yeah. and uh, the changes and what you grew up with, what do you think uh, some of the value that your parents raised you with that you continue to implement in your home, even consciously and unconsciously? Yeah, you know, this is a very, I wish my wife was here. She'll tell you all the complaints. Um, I definitely am very big on discipline. I'm big on, and and yes, you know, especially with my oldest daughter. And that's something that I know, like my wife and I sometimes have different philosophies on how we raise our kids. And that's part of marriage, that's part of life. So I'm, my, my mother, my father always raised me to be disciplined, to be respectful um, and to work hard and, you know, to do your best. And, you know, always think about, always think about family, but there's always something, I think sometimes um, they, they, people who don't see those things always feel like what you're going through now is very, is very oppressive and there's no reward for it. And sometimes I try to explain to them, like, for me, my dad always told me, and it's something that I still keep with me, um, you know, is your attitude not your is what he says. It's your attitude, not your aptitude, that determines your altitude mm. in life, right? Mm. Because anybody, I mean, you have people who are smart, who are bright, right? But a lot of people, the most genuine, most successful people, are the ones that people remember. The, the ones that people know are genuine. People come back when you're good to people, when you're genuinely respectful and and kind, and, and you treat people the way you want to be treated. They always find their way back to you because they always remember the people who are people always pretend like, oh, it's just, you know, the ones who are good to you, the people who are good to you mm-hmm. in life, you never forget them, no matter what, Whether, no matter how old you are, whatever, you never forget the ones who are who, who did well by you. So I always try to raise my daughter and my sons and all my kids 
to understand that it's very good to be respectful, always very good to be polite, treat people the way you want to be treated. But I'm always very good about holding yourself accountable, right? Be responsible and be accountable for yourself, especially when, you know, and I'm very big on the African practice of seniority in terms of as a senior sister, you have responsibility. As a junior brother, you have your own responsibilities. And trust me, you may not seem, it may not seem like things are very nice now. I'll give you a perfect example. My daughter is, my oldest daughter is 10, nine years older than her brother, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, 11 years old, no, 10 years older than her sister, Mm -hmm. right? So she has a huge age difference, Mm -hmm. right? And I tried to explain to her as she's growing up now that, you know, you have to be able to be a role model. You have to be able to do things, learn how to take care of yourself, learn how to take care of the house, learn how to, you know, do your chores, be responsible because one, they're watching. And two, yes, you take care of your brothers, you take care of your sister because when you get to the age when they're actually doing stuff and doing their chores and things of that nature, now you're the one that's supervising them, right? And you're the one that's showing them how to do it. And then when you get to that age, when they're adults, a lot of their upbringing will be attributed to not just us, but you. And you then earn the same respect of that similar to a parent and not just a sister. The respect that they'll give you will be unmatched, right? It's not a typical sit because you are very much so a huge part of their upbringing. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a very unique experience compared to being one that's two, three years, five, you know, older than them. You're 10 years older than them. Mm-hmm. To that point, in some country, in some African country, that's auntie level, right? Like they, <laughs> that's you know, what, they yeah. call you auntie, right? And, and, yeah. and my wife, my wife couldn't understand why you could call your sister, your big sister, your auntie, but I tried to explain the age different plays a major role in our culture. Even so within was, a year. Within a year in some places, exactly. So I was trying to, you know, so those are the, the differences as far as the African-American and, and, and um, the African ex- and dynamic. But I was explaining to my daughter that your brothers and sister will never treat you in a way that you, because they know there's no way. Like they, the way you, you brought them up, you took care of them, you changed their diaper, you fed them, you, you put their clothes on, you helped them, you, sh- you showed them how to clean up after themselves. There's no way they'll talk crazy to you when you get older. Mm-hmm. there's no way whatever you say they'll look at it like it's gold mm-hmm. because there's no way they'll disrespect you how and if they do they'll they'll apologize severely because they know what you've done for them right and those are things that money can't buy those are the things that those are invaluable yeah. behaviors that my mom passed on to me because when I was older that's how I treated my younger brother that's how I took care of them and my younger brother my younger brother understands where I stand in his life Right. I, he knows that whatever I tell him is not I'm not an authority in his life, but he understands that I take him seriously. So if I give him advice is because I I'm I truly care. And he gives me the respect, not just because I demand it because I'm your senior brother, but he knows from day one I've been taking care of you. And I do whatever. Even to this day, if you need anything, I take care of you. I'm responsible for you to this very day. My parents at my old age and my brother's <laughs> 25 to this day, my parents will still call me from Nigeria or wherever. And be like, make sure you look after your brother. Make sure you take care of him. And I'm like, he's a grown man. It's still, <laughs> but, it's, but so it's still those things. And so um, that was a very, that's a very important part of my upbringing that I want to pass on to my children. I definitely want to pass on the, the, the idea of being resilient hard, and working hard and understanding that everything is not about convenience. You need to know how things work. And when I say that, I mean, yes, we have a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to learn how to wash plate, plate properly and it's and, and it's something that i just so a lot of people feel like it's just me being very conventional but i'm explaining to them you once you if you are so dependent on these new advanced machineries and you don't understand the fundamentals you'll you're you're, you're putting your life in that device's hand 
no, you need I, to learn it, how to be independent. It, it, it also builds characters and being able to be efficient in many things. Because exactly. when we were growing up back home, we, I used to give example to my kids, you know, and some other kids that I come across. I said, we used to go and fetch water. But when you come to America, you don't have to fetch water. But then it makes you to be efficient in so many other things. Exactly. What could be stressful to other people is not stressful to you, to you because you already know how to do it. But I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you were able to pinpoint on that because I've heard some of uh, parents who complain that uh, they tell their uh, older ch- child to take care of the younger one. They say, oh, I didn't give birth to that child. You know, you are the that, Yeah, that frustrates uh-huh. me. That uh-huh. frustrates me. You are the mom much. or you are the dad. You should be able to do that, you know, by yourself. So no. it's it's part of sometimes very frustrating to African parents because we could yeah. pinpoint African parents at this and that and all that stuff. But what are the things that the children are also learning here? It's and a very selfish mindset to say that. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and when I say that, I mean it's not. It's a very selfish. Yes, it's true. The children and I've had similar conversations in the past, not regarding my own, but it's just. Yeah, I didn't choose to have birth. Yeah, we understand that these children didn't choose. But let me also explain to you, especially for those who are very privileged, I choose to give you these luxuries that you have in life. We, we're, as parents, tr- truth be told, we're only guaranteed to give you the fundamentals. You have clothes, you have shoes, you have food, right? We don't have to give you anything fancy, but you have all these convenient comforts in life because we're going above and beyond because we want you to not go through what we went through. This is what I tell my kids. But it's also very important to understand that respect is earned. And people, especially if you're an older sister, they're watching you. You don't understand that you will play a very pivotal part because we as parents, we're not going to be here forever. We're not here. We're not meant to be here forever. But when we go, you need there's there's an extension of us there's an extension of our family that lays within your older sister and you then have the responsibility to to make this leadership role take this leadership role into the direction you want to take it to but you at least understand what it's like to be responsible for others because when you understand what it feels like to be responsible for others when you have your own full-blown response you know what to do you understand you understand the decision that you have to make you don't wait until you then have it and then you don't you're freaking out you understood what my wife used to say my wife when we first got together my wife would say and say oh because my 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 oldest isn't necessarily biologically mine but you know it is it's still my child but she's like oh you don't you you don't you never had a child you don't know how to raise I said look I've raised my young like you don't understand I've no I know how to be responsible for other people Mm -hmm. I know how to take care of people because it's a very selfless act I know how to put myself second and put my younger ones first that's not something that you need to have a baby there are many people who have babies they don't know what to do with themselves there are many You know, many people have babies and abuse them and hurt them. And it's not about you having a baby that makes you solely responsible and know how to raise a child. No, you know, you need to learn how to make yourself second. When you, when there's food on the table and you have to pick who needs to eat, you need to make that decision. How do you make that decision by just saying, because you have a child? No, people are very, people are very inherently selfish. And when you have that mindset, that just enhances your selfishness because it's still, you still, these are things, especially as you're growing up as a child that I try to explain to the older ones that, yeah, we didn't choose to have these kids, but we're giving you an opportunity now for you to learn how to be able to take care of other people. Because when you show that you can take care of other people, that's a true mark of leadership. You say you want to be, 
you want to be this, that, and this, you want to be this person, you want to be a doctor. The people that distinguish themselves in these particular areas are good leaders. And they're ones who know how to be responsible for others. They're the ones who know how to take care of themselves and say, hey, it's not about me. It's about the entire people. I need to make sure that my people eat, that I need to make sure they know how to take care of themselves. If you don't know that, then you'll never be a good leader. You'll yeah. always be a follower. Yeah. But uh, sometimes some of our, uh, our children don't really understand that because uh, that's part of what they think they're picking up in America. That is a country, is a land of freedom. And, you know, I, you know, uh, expose myself to different communities, even among African-Americans, you see them, the elderly one taking care of the uh, younger ones, they help out within the household. You go within the Latino community, it's the same, you know, they help out with it. Even I was so moved by some of the stories that I listened to through other podcasts about the Latino children who graduated from colleges just like you who are phd older who are actually coming back to their community and bringing that knowledge back into their community and say how can i help you know other children okay that i was listening to one story this past week of a young lady who you know uh very good in computer and she went to ucla i believe you know, end up graduating with computer science. And she said, there are other kids just like her from mm-hmm. our neighborhood mm-hmm. when she was growing up who could have benefited from the same thing, but they have to think about how do they eat? Mm-hmm. The poverty rate over there that many parents cannot afford extra classes. So she, after graduating from college and working in uh, Silicon Valley, and she came back to her community and started a program. Imagine. Okay, able to get funding to start a program for the youth of where she grew up among children of immigrants to be able to say, you know what, you don't have to worry about this. This is how I'm going to help you. And she was able to get funding and establish a program for some of these kids who could be a leader tomorrow when it comes to, you know, uh, 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 the new system of, you know, computer science or whatever you want to call it. So that is uh, is very profound from what you said, because you could be able to relate what you learn from your background, okay, of upbringing and relate it to your family and then, then expand it, you know, to other other areas. So what about the subconscious one, the one that you don't even realize that is there? Well, that one is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much so a stern yeller. <laughs> so, so that one, and that's my mom, you know, I'm very, a lot of things subconsciously, I'm just like, man, that's my mom. That, by the time I look up, I'm like, yo, that's how my mom acts, right? It's very, like, is <laughs> there, I'm like the, the, the tone when you're very serious, when you're, when you're demanding, you know, an answer for something, it subconsciously, I think just the idea of saying, of being able to, to, quickly pinpoint what what needs to be um accounted for immediately and then demanding this answer like i'm very very quick of like what what happened with all this thing what, what's going on with it like and just in my tone chain my daughter's just like oh god what's going on my this guy started or like seriously so i think that's part of the and, and and what i try to explain to my my kids too that this it is subconscious it's not something i intentionally do but i think that what it allowed me to do was i knew how to respond under pressure Right. And because especially when I'm, it's not like my mom was my mom was an ab- abusive, just a typical African parent that likes to mm-hmm. yell, whatever. Right. But my mom was very quick to apply pressure. What's this? What's going on? What's, and, and for me, I used to be like, man, like this is but it, I started to realize how do I handle pressure? 
right? And that's something that now I, I tell my daughters that when I'm sitting here doing these things, and even if it's subconscious, you know, these are the opportunities for you to learn how to to work under pressure. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that everybody's going to be a yeller. You know, her mom's not a yeller, yeah. but how do you respond when the pressure's on? How do, do you, did your heart slow down or did your heart rate fast? Does it race fast, right? And so these are things, and, and, and the truth is, it's not necessarily to, you just, I just want to know who my kids are, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's ultimately it. It's not, I, I don't think, I, I don't love them less for how they respond, but I need to know who they are. And that's one thing that I wish, you know, my parents could have done more until I became an adult was, I always told myself that one thing I never want to do is not know who my children are. Mm-hmm. I want to know who they are from day one. I want to know their personality. I want to know how they respond. I want to know how they're evolving, right? I want them to feel, they want them to respectfully express themselves. Right? Express yourself. Let me know how you feel. Let me know what I did wrong. Hold me accountable if necessary, but also be respectful about it. Because again, it's not just about what you practice at home is what you go out there and continue to, to perform. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, you know, one of the things I always tell my kids is that, you know, when you go out, once you go out, and you actually are in public and you see, interact with other people. My, my, my child, my daughter was like six, five. And we, you know, I was doing my postdoc in Florida. My daughter would come and she just sit, behave herself, respectful. Everybody was, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma. Like, and these are things that my wife was just like, oh, why? I don't see. But once you, once you see how people responded, like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, you know, and my supervisor then, my, when I was doing my postdoc, every time she saw my daughter, she would give her $10. Just because, and my daughter was just like, "Well, why? I'm like, that's because you're well behaved. She sees the potential in you, and she she's yeah. investing in you. Yeah. Yeah. When people see the potential in you, they want to invest in you. Once you show certain characteristics, people want to invest in you. So it's not just your dad yelling. I mean, yeah. these are things that people. And this is, I've said, this is how I behave. It's not me being fake, but genuinely, I treat people with respect. I care about people. Yeah. I want the best for people. Yeah. I understand and I respect my elders, and I behave in a way that you know, I don't, I don't consider myself a pushover, but I consider myself someone that respects other people's opinions. And thoughts. Yeah, that, which, which is very important. That would take you so far. I remember one time I was listening to uh, this African immigrant children and African-American having a dialogue regarding uh-huh. how, you know, uh, one African-American uh, young man said, oh, he, he has African friend, African immigrant children friends. And he said, one thing with African immigrant parents, you just have to be respectful. He said, the moment, this is an African-American, you know, person talking. He said, when you are respectful, you go to their house, you become their son. They Mm -hmm. feed you. (laughs) They feed you, they they give you things and all that stuff. It's true. It's true. There's, I have so many friends from when I was a kid, the ones who chose to be respectful. Mm Mm-hmm. There, there's so many of my young friends who understood how to properly be comport themselves around African parents uh, and just give them the due respect. There are many of them to this day who friends who I haven't talked to in a long time and my mom still asks them, like, where, how's this person doing? How's this person? Because you, initially, once you show them that you're going to give them that respect, the culture, culture is a very important thing in our community. And it's, it's a very priceless thing that we, we really care about our children, really care about, you know, our cultural values. And when you adhere to them and you value them as much as our parents do, they, they hold you to, they hold you in high regard. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people tend to overlook sometimes. Yeah, that's true. I, you know, I have so much to ask you, but I'm just going to ask you the last one. All right, I know. I'm taking too much time. Uh-huh. And, you know, uh, I know you have to take care of the kids and, you mm-hmm. know, get back to your family. So as a professor, and I know you've come across many 
diverse students from different backgrounds. What yeah. do you think are some of the children of immigrants, African immigrant children are struggling with in colleges? I think, I think that's a very good question. I think, and it's actually interesting because uh, it's aligning with a study that I was doing this past uh, year. A lot, of stu- a lot of children of immigrants are definitely dealing with stress and the ability, the lack of ability to, uh, to express that to their parents. Um, there's a lot of stress from just my own experience dealing with, you know, from my own research experience, I was actually collecting data and interviewing children of Black immigrants from, from Haiti, Nigeria, even from even some parts of the Dominican Republic, who they felt a lot of pressure from their parents to achieve certain goals, right? They don't, their parents also, in you know, intentionally um, continue to uh, embed this this notion that they're not African Americans. They have different standards. So a lot of them, when they don't want to be in these particular fields, they don't want to do these particular professions. They want to go do art. They want to do music. They're scared to tell their parents uh, because they're not thriving, and they don't want to be viewed as failures because our community is very interdependent, not independent. So that means that when one when mom tells you that you're failing and the whole village knows and now the whole village perceives you to be the disappointment. And if you value the good of your community, which is all the great things that come with being our community, there's also bad too, right? And that and that's one of the consequences of, of being in these interdependent communities that everybody's involved, everybody knows and everybody holds you to certain standards and you don't know how to deal with that pressure and how to then remove yourself and do what's do what's best for you right it's a very difficult thing of deciding when do I do what's best for me compared to what's best for the entire family the community because you're the one that they're invested in and they're the one you're the first generation college student you're the you're the youngest one whatever the case may be you're the one that's going to college to be more successful so what are you going to do and we expect you to do well there's a lot of African African immigrant um, children that that deal with that and don't know how to articulate this, this stress they they now and and it's been they're not never been exposed to the idea of therapy never been exposed to the idea of counseling and this is when they get to college is when they start relying on it but when you start relying on therapy and counseling you start to consider yourself you know sick or you start to feel like you're failing and you can't handle your own business and then it's and then that's not the case you know therapy is healthy therapy is like exercising it's it's fine you can work on building your 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 health your mental health um progressively but they don't view it like that right it's the, it's, a, it's a learning process the learning curve they have to take to understand that when you go and find a place to be able to alleviate your stress have a source that can be able to help walk you through your stress that you're more likely to be able to find a way to lead a healthier life. Um, and, and you be able to have some, some breakthroughs as far as understanding that, look, at the end of the day, and I have to tell myself this too, is you can be whatever you, you can be, whatever you want. Your parents can complain, whatever you want to complain, but I guarantee you, if you make, if you send them a check, they're not going to cancel it. <laughs> and, that was, and that was something that was something that my you know my advisor told me was like look whatever you want to be people complain that you're not an md whatever but i guarantee if you send a check and you wrote dr ebay lambert or whatever no one's going to say they're not going to cash that check right if you send that to your parents your parents are not going to say no we don't want that money. like they're going to cash it so yeah. who cares if you send it to your family member in nigeria you send them a check do they care what your profession is now no so be what you want to be and be successful because the best you is going to be the most successful you and if you're the best you then, you know, everybody will be happy at some point. Everybody has their life to live. It's a very, di- but that's a very difficult um, epiphany to reach. 
at a very young age, 18, 19, 20, you're not there yet. You know, you're still thinking about just all the other things that you, you have to work through mm-hmm. because you're in college. This is the first time in your life that you're fully independent, mm-hmm. that you fully are free from the grasp of your parents. And not everybody's truly even free, right? So it's a very, <laughs> it's a very true, it's a very in, in, in interesting space that, but, but that's what they deal with primarily. And, and then also the fact of dealing with their identity and how they relate to their, you know, their, their daily world compared to their personal cultural, you know, spaces, those are very challenging things as well. Um, and then one thing I'll just say to close, to kind of finish my, my statement is that again, going back to what I said, a lot of them just do these, uh, take on these majors and, and pursue these professions for the sake of making their parents happy. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them don't use, and you described it so, so well, a lot of us, don't go back and use the skills that we've acquired to go help our own people. And that's the part that bothers me the most. And I have to say it on this podcast, especially for the parents is if who are listening is that please, 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 if you do want your child to be in a particular profession and they achieve that, please use them as a resource to serve the greater community. And when they adhere, when they say something, bring it in their skill that they've worked very hard for trust and respect that is for your own good because i've had so many african immigrant kids who were born here or came at a young age for 1.5 or 2 whatever who go on and be doctors lawyers and they're like look when i talk to them privately i look the degree that's for the parents that one's for them i got it for them now they can leave me alone right and it's like but you just spent 8 10 12 years of your life working so hard to generate these skills because not only did you were you expected to pass you were expected to pass with flying colors but that means you knew it you and you studied it you you've, you've taken on these skills and it's become part of who you are and part of your practice why are you not being encouraged to use this in the in the spaces where the people need it most which is our own space because we have so many of us in these professions who go and help other populations you go and you're a doctor, you're a researcher, and you're going to study African-American studies when true, you need to know about that. But there's so many things that you can be using your skills for to help our people here. So it's nothing wrong with encouraging our kids to be able to go pursue these professions. But I also think it's worth encouraging them to bring it and use it to help our community grow and flourish because we don't have the necessary tools right now to be able to thrive. All we know how to do is survive, yeah. but we don't know how to thrive. And yes. that's what we need to do. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, as Nigerians, whereby they say, oh, we are the most educated immigrants mm-hmm. in America and even among the people of color, even, you know, surpass uh, white America as well. We have many other community within African immigrant that is struggling. You yeah. don't know. You, it, it is so much. I, if I have to sit down here, I could discuss it all day. You have to save it for another, another yeah, many, maybe many in, a, in public education system, how to advocate for your children. So yeah. many things that is lacking within our communities. And when we are not having many of our, our, our successful ones who are in this different field coming into practice within the neighborhood, where they were born into, then you are doing the service because you might say, oh, I'm up there already. I'm okay. But then look at your whole community. What do you want them to say? Just like the Latino communities, they come back, they serve their community, they bring back many, whether they are in law, they are in this and that, they they bring it back. 
So it's all part of all those things. So thank you so much. And I know you are on the fourth season of uh, My Black is Transnational. So yeah. you want to pitch it a little bit for people so that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm one of the fans. I download it all the time. When I'm <laughs> thank on you. Sunday, that's what I listen to. Oh, man, I'm very grateful for your support. Yes, please make sure that you, um, if you are interested in learning more about how we as the dynamic Black community and our transnational interactions. What it is, is um, for season four, we are really focused on uh, what I call sowing season and all the seeds that we're planting. We're now hoping that we grow. People are becoming more aware of what it is to be transnational. We're having people who have, um, you know, these dual citizenships and really talk about what it's like to navigate between here and home and what it, how it impacts your, your, you know, them growing up. Um, we have a lot of very important topics that we're going to be covering. Uh, I just did it. I just released an episode um, with a young Ghanaian um, um, fashion designer, uh, Mr. Eddie Opong, who uh, just talked about him growing up in Ghana. And I mean, not growing up in Ghana, I apologize, growing up here, but speaks the language and is so acculturated to life as a Ghanaian, but never been to Ghana, right? And how his this experience influences the fashion and bringing Ghanaian culture into urban streetwear. Mm. Uh, very interesting, interesting conversation. And I'm having another one that's coming up this uh, this forthcoming uh, week or so with um, Dr. Nadia Sasso, who did a, a documentary that I highly recommend you watch. It's called, uh, Am I Too African to be American and Too American to be African? And she did it in 2015 as a dissertation in Cornell University. And I met with her to just talk about, you know, how she went about putting that together and what the struggle is now as a, a even though she's a, you know, she is a doctoral holding, um, doc, she holds a doctoral degree. Uh, she, you know, speaks about how the challenges in, in filmmaking and, and being a creative and how we're trying to tell our stories, but how difficult it is for us to be able to tell the African immigrant and children experiences in in Hollywood or in filmmaking when there's so many of us now in those spaces, whether it was because we just chose to do it, many of them have these other professional degrees, but decided that was for their parents and decided to go pursue their dreams in Hollywood or whatever the case may be. Um, but how can we continue to tell our stories through film? Uh, so there are different ways in which this season will be really bringing the transnational idea to the perspective. I ask anyone who's interested, you can check out our newly formed website at www.blacktransnational.com. It's a beautiful website. I have to give a, a give shout out to my, my brother, Hamid Bella, who, who put in work and putting that uh, website together. And it, it makes us feel like we're officially, uh, we've officially arrived. So I, I strongly recommend um, everyone check it out, blacktransnational.com. If you need anything, you can listen to the podcast there. You can look at information about the guests. Um, you can, I mean, we're going to have shirts and caps and all those things coming up soon. So Wow, um, we're, we're, going, we're going at the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I really want to thank you, Dr. Kelechi Lambert, for this wealth of knowledge that you brought to our audience regarding African and Black identity and the selfless work that you continue to do through your podcast, My Black is Transnational, and other needed community conversation that we continue to engage in, you know, yes, be, yes. Uh, uh, between African immigrant parents and their children, building the bridges. I, I would love to encourage many of our listeners to please subscribe to My Black is Transnational, and I enjoy listening to your podcast. Thank you Thank so you. much for coming. Thank you so much, Ati. A pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ponzo Ponzo Live Podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, 
you can email us at talk at ponsaponsa.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A, P-A-N-S-A dot org. And follow us on Instagram at ponsa.ponsaforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourself.